0: Welcome to the Medicare Meetup. I'm Meg Kepke, and I'm joined today by my colleague and co-host, Melissa Cohen. This podcast is brought to you by Arrera Health Group, a mission-focused policy, strategy, and operations practice committed to making healthcare more affordable, more accessible, and high quality for all. We meet monthly to recap the Medicare news of the day and look ahead. Tune in each month for fresh content. On today's show, we continue with the mailbag. You all had a lot of questions about dual eligible populations and policy. We're excited to dive in with special guests from a rare health group. But first, Melissa, I'm determined to go this whole show without reflecting on how fast the year is going. I'm trying on the power of positive thinking. There's
1: still plenty of time to accomplish our collective 2023 bucket lists. I like calling it a bucket list as opposed to New Year's resolutions because then it's easier to roll over, like money left in your FSA. I like that too. In Medicare news, after a flurry of RFIs and proposed rules, we're in a
0: little bit of uh, calm before the storm and news starts breaking all around us.
1: That's right. There's no new news on macro or changes to primary care or a national provider directory, but there have been a few new model announcements from CMMI, as well as proposed changes to MA rates and risk adjustment that are causing quite the stir. Indeed, the battle is brewing over MA changes to rates and
0: risk adjustment. Fingers are pointing in every direction. Melissa, how do we make sense of this? Is the Biden administration proposing cuts to Medicare? Is this just industry lobbying at its finest?
1: What's the real story? Well, it's always a little bit of both, right? The administration is not proposing MA cuts per se, but the changes would impact profitability. With news of overpayments and unsavory audit findings for many of the me- major players in MA reported on throughout the summer and fall, and with the growing numbers of seniors enrolling in MA over traditional Medicare, this is the heat we expected.
0: Yes, indeed. And for the first decade of the Innovation Center, the focus felt almost exclusively on traditional Medicare, but we have anticipated that those tables might turn as more and more of the population are covered by MA and Medicare looks to manage that cost. Add to that the challenges with risk adjustment, too little risk adjustment, and you're not adequately accounting for the burden of illness, which, let's be clear, is most impactful to the patients who experience that illness but also really inhibits the ability to care for complex populations if the care is not adequately reimbursed. But on the other hand, too much risk adjustment and the games with upcoding and overpayment commence, and that's just a reality. With the administration, MA, and advanced APMs, the battle lines are very well drawn.
1: So here's what I expect. There are going to be changes, but they won't be as severe as proposed. It's going to be the classic half a loaf, where no one is happy, but everyone can kind of live with it. Melissa, let's also talk
0: about new models. The CMS just announced some new models in the drug space in response to the Biden administration's executive order. Not a lot of details yet, and so go live may still be pretty far off. But we're also hearing publicly from Liz Fowler as many as three to four new advanced primary care models and a model that would allow states to assume accountability for the
1: total cost of
0: care. How
1: soon do you think we'll see those? My hunch is not until later in the year, with applications due for the 2025 performance year. It's already late now to announce and launch a new model application for 2024 participation, and we know that running models on an off-calendar cycle is a recipe for disaster when coordinating across programs and trying to do partial year reconciliations. It is not worth it.
0: Okay, so maybe later this year we'll hear about the details of those new models. On the subject of states, do states want to take responsibility for the total cost of care? What does that even mean?
1: We won't know exactly what it means until the model details are announced. But what we think states would love is an opportunity to demonstrate that what they're already doing in Medicaid-managed care, targeted case management, and some of the other new flexibilities— is saving Medicare a ton of money and they'd like to share in some of those savings. We know from previous attempts that financial alignment across Medicaid and Medicare is challenging to prove savings and complicated to enact. We'll have to see what comes of these hints from CMMI leader Liz Fowler at What's Around the Corner.
0: So I'm sort of excited for this year in Medicare and I will admit that it's sneaking up on me because I wasn't sure that it would be like a big Medicare news year, but it's feeling like it might be shaping up for that. Woohoo! Today we're talking dual eligibles. Should we get to it? Yes, let's. We are joined today by two of Herrera's Senior Directors of Medicaid Policy and Programs, Crystal Vardaman and Mary Russell. Crystal specializes in long-term services and supports, dually eligible beneficiaries, social determinants of health, and health equity. She previously served as Policy Director at the Medicaid and CHIP Payment and Access Commission, MACPAC, where she developed recommendations for Congress around integrating care for dual eligible individuals, among many other health care initiatives. Mary has a background in Medicare and Medicaid policy, health plan operations, and strategic communications. She has several years of experience implementing programs for complex populations, including dual eligible individuals in California. Welcome to you both. It's so nice to have you. Who wants to give our listeners a quick definition of the dually eligible individual? Hi, Meg. I'm
2: happy to be here. Thanks for having us. I'm happy to jump in and share a definition. So dually eligible beneficiaries are people who qualify for both Medicare and Medicaid benefits because of their age or disability and low incomes. Um, the population of dually eligible beneficiaries nationally is really diverse, includes a lot of people with multiple chronic conditions, physical disabilities, as well as cognitive impairments. And there are also some individuals who are actually relatively healthy. A quick refresher for our listeners, but in for duals, Medicare is the primary payer and Medicaid provides varying levels of assistance with Medicare premiums and cost sharing for this population. Great. Also, for many beneficiaries, Medicaid also covers services not included in the Medicare benefit, like long-term services and supports or LTSS. I wanted to grab some data in case that's helpful to keep contextualizing this, but the 2022 MedPAC and MACPAC dually eligible data book, which is a great resource, reported that about 19% of all Medicare beneficiaries were duly eligible. That doesn't mean that all 12 million or so were enrolled in a dual eligible special needs plan, which is a specific type of Medicare Advantage product that serves this population. Many duals are enrolled in Medicare, regular Medicare plans.
0: Great. Thanks, Mary. And how did you get involved in dual eligible policy? So I've
2: worked with this population in a few different ways over the last decade. Starting on the plan side, I joined LA Care Health Plan in Los Angeles County the week that the plan was actually going through their readiness review about to launch the CalMediConnect Connect product, which is the financial alignment de- demonstration here in California. I got to see that program grow from the first member to about 10,000 members and now I joke with my team that I'm having a very full circle moment working at Herrera and partnering with California's Department of Healthcare Services on the transition from the CalMedi Connect demonstration into a statewide DSNIP integration program.
0: Nice. You've been at you've been at it for a while. And Crystal, how about you? How did you get involved in dual eligible policy?
3: All right. Thanks, Meg. I'm happy to join the podcast today. I started off in my career in healthcare policy working on Medicare post-acute care payment policy for a consulting firm, and then moved into government at the Government Accountability Office where I focused a lot on Medicare administration and Medicare Advantage. But I was always really interested in Medicaid, and so working on issues around duly eligible beneficiaries was really a logical like next step to tie my Medicare background with Medicaid.
0: Fantastic. Well, we decided to make an entire podcast episode out of questions around the dual eligible population because we got so many when we opened the, the the mailbag of listeners and clients and colleagues about what might be happening in policy relative to Medicare or Medicare adjacent in 2023. And so we're so glad that the two of you could join us. It seems like we've got the right panel assembled. Um, To get started, can you talk about some of the challenges for this population? I know you outlined a few of the obstacles that they face in your recent response to the Congressional Request for Information. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So dually eligible beneficiaries have been really interesting to policymakers
2: and healthcare stakeholders for a lot of reasons. Many of those are centered on the complexities surrounding the expense of their care and their healthcare experiences. That same 2022 data book that I mentioned explains that the total per person per year Medicare spend for a non-dual beneficiary was about $11,000 in 2019, but for a dual eligible beneficiary, that cost is closer to $23,000. So we were really encouraged to see the RFI that was released this fall and outlined some really thoughtful questions about how our healthcare system is currently serving dual eligible beneficiaries. We kind of took those questions back and based on our longstanding relationship with the state of California and other experiences that our team has had working with this population, we've really been able to see up close how states and other healthcare providers are really serving dual eligible beneficiaries and working to improve that integration. Crystal and I were really excited to share some of our team's perspective and respond to that RFI. Several of the observations we shared are based on lessons learned from the Calmedic Connect demonstration here in California, and a large area of focus is on a beneficiary's care management experience. For a dual-eligible beneficiary in a, special, a, a DSNIP product, which is a dual-eligible special needs plan, the care management journey is really what makes the difference. It's the, the huge differentiator in how their care is delivered. And on paper, looking at the model of care guidelines that are released by NCQA and really serves as the structure for this experience, the concept is great. You know, it all makes such great sense. I think in reality, though, what we've seen is that it gets really hard to actually operationalize true integration within a health plan and within a program, I think. Crystal and I felt like, you know, we've still seen many instances of the right hand coordinating the Medicare benefits, but the left hand overseeing the Medicaid benefits and the hands not always talking to each other.
0: Those are significant challenges, but you provided a few thoughts on how to improve the care experience for these beneficiaries based on specific examples of how California is approaching these issues. Can you talk more about that? So within the Cal
2: Medi-Connect demonstration, there was some more specific guidance, particularly around risk stratification, health risk assessment approaches, for example. And I think that was really helpful. It led to a higher standard of integration. It was really built into that unique three-way contract between the state, CMS, and the health plan. So we really wanted to call out some of those examples that might be considered in future thinking or program design. We also shared some thoughts about the need for state teams to be better educated on Medicare policy and guidance to support the implementation of these more integrated programs. This is an area where actually California is really leading the way. We've been really excited to see the implementation of the Office of Medicare Innovation and Integration, or OMI, that was recently established at California's Department of Healthcare Services. It really acknowledges the need for state leaders to be thinking more intentionally about Medicare beneficiaries within their population including those that are duly eligible. Also helps to raise awareness and broaden understanding of Medicare knowledge among decision makers throughout state teams. There's definitely a translation that happens between federal program and state program and how they can kind of come to the middle. So we've seen that already taking, already making a great impact within California and, and hopeful that other states will be following suit as well.
0: The RFI asked whether we should improve the current system of care or develop a new system for dual eligible beneficiaries. You said in your response that there are merits for each. What do you want to tell us about those? Are you leaning in one direction?
3: Sure. So I'll start by saying that we came at this from a really pragmatic angle. So we know that the current system that we have is complicated, it's inefficient, but it's also very entrenched. And so Congress needs to determine whether incremental changes are enough to overcome the issues that we see or whether there needs to be a full overhaul. And so what we did in our letter was to lay out a couple of factors that we think are important to the success of either approach. So those factors are our focus on care coordination, providing flexibility to states to tailor their programs and innovate, and creating positive financial incentives. So there's merits in building on the existing system and making sure that we don't lose progress where so much good work has been done already. And we really don't want to cause too much disruption in beneficiaries' care um, because really an overhaul of the system could cause some disruption and so it would have to be transitioned very carefully. At the same time, we know that there's gaps in the existing system. We know that some states aren't as far along as others and integrating care. So, you know, we understand the desire for uh, to try something different. But again, it would be a big, difficult change.
0: You mentioned the PACE model, which stands for the Program for All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly. Our listeners were curious to find out what it would take to change the funding model with a national approach. The PACE model has been quite successful, some argue, in integrating care for high-need individuals, but it's voluntary. And so can you remind us about the PACE model and, and whether you think it might be a, a good national approach and if it were more mandated or more incentivized?
3: Sure. So PACE is a really intensive and comprehensive approach to care that incorporates services at a day center for beneficiaries in addition to the services that they may receive at home and in the community. So beneficiaries in PACE are cared for by an interdisciplinary care team and Medicare and Medicaid for duly eligible beneficiaries is each paying a share of the cost for the program. It's optional for states and also beneficiaries have to volunteer to enroll in PACE. and. The latest figures we have show about 56,000 people are enrolled in PACE programs. We've seen some growth in PACE in recent years, particularly as for-profit operators have been allowed to enter the space. So PACE is hard to scale up is one of the issues because there are startup costs that are involved and ongoing costs involved by virtue of it having a physical space. Um, But it is a program that's, you know, shown a lot of good evidence of positive outcomes for example, reducing hospitalization. So I think expanding access to PACE could be a good thing for many people, but given its size, it's not likely to solve our integrated care issues. So I think it's always gonna be a part of a menu of options, but not the only option.
0: You know, a lot of our listeners come from a space where they have for a decade plus been engaged in total cost of care or or close to full risk financial accountability for populations. Many of them get their start in traditional Medicare, but also Medicaid managed care and some in commercial spaces where they've been incentivized for quite a while to improve care and cost and quality. And they struggle with the dual eligible population because they see the greatest need for investment, the greatest opportunity for making a difference. And as provider organizations, as physicians, as integrated delivery systems, they're in a great position to do that. And yet the financial incentives aren't aligned. The the office isn't even aligned. They don't even know where to go. Which door do I knock on to say... I have an ability to do this differently. I have an ability to improve this. How do I do it? And so, you know, as we were talking a little bit around the edges of the podcast, we were reflecting on, like, what's hard about that? And why? Why can't we just have an aligned system? Why does it have to be um, this this space where both the states and the federal government have a piece here and, and it stays separate? So I'm wondering if you have some thoughts on that.
3: Sure. So I think in terms of integrating the system, either federal government is going to have to take control over the Medicaid side, or the states have to take control over the Medicare side. And in terms of the federal government and the Medicaid benefits, I think the challenge is that Medicare and the federal government haven't had to have as much involvement in long-term service and supports. And that is an area where many, if not most, duly eligible beneficiaries have a need for for those kinds of services. And so LTSS are often very small providers, very local providers, sort of mom and pop providers. And so I think one of the big challenges of the federal government sort of incorporating Medicaid benefits into a comprehensive package would be their just lack of experience with, you know, on the ground LTSS services.
1: And Crystal, can you give our listeners a little bit of a primer on what examples of LTSS are.
3: Sure, so LTSS includes institutional services like skilled nursing care, but also home and community-based services, which are really high touch in the home services. So personal care services, helping people bathe and dress, but also services in the community. So day center services, supported employment services, things that help people not just improve their health, but also their well-being.
0: So, Crystal, you make a very valid point that the federal government would have a lot to learn about the administration of long-term services and supports to stretch into the Medicaid space of the dual eligible. Mary, you spoke a moment ago about states then, as they're looking to coordinate care for dual eligibles, they need to learn a lot more about Medicare. And that also seems hard. And so do you want to speak to the challenge on the state side? Sure. Yeah, it's definitely,
2: it's a big lift. States see it as an opportunity and they see it as a way to better serve members of this population, but there's definitely a, a gap there. And, you know, state staff is busy. They have they have full-time jobs. So for a lot of them, this is a, another responsibility and this is another area of growth, but definitely a need. I think what's been really helpful is the CMS Medicare and Medicaid Coordination Office, MMCO, that was established to really play this role a uh, sort of the go-between between federal policy, state policy. How do they meet in the middle? How do they all kind of develop a shared knowledge and working understanding on these programs? So I think the MMCO office and team has been a huge help to states that are
0: trying to carry this mantle. Some data from Medicare Advantage plans and D-SNPs without full financial integration suggest there is better coordination, but perhaps more cost-shifting than cost-reducing. Do you think that dsNps are having the intended impact?
3: So I think this is the big question that policymakers are asking now. It's a bit hard to tease out the effects of you know, different plans, just given a variety of models out there, the different plans, you know, how different states have set up their integrated care programs, and really a lack of comparable data on program outcomes. But there is a real effort and interest in gathering more information to be able to make these kinds of assessments in the future.
0: Next, I'm wondering what you see or hope to see in short and long term future policy for dual eligibles. I know I've been
2: drawn to work with this population because of the challenges, but the opportunities for improvement when you're working across federal and state programs and translating those requirements to provide high quality care. I'm really encouraged. There's so much interest in this population right now between the RFI, between multiple states closing out demonstrations and moving into more permanent programs and integrated care. There's so much thought being put into truly improving outcomes for duly eligible beneficiaries. And I also think that this population demonstrates a lot of the challenges that so many other people are experiencing in the way that our healthcare system operates. I think that, you know, dually eligible beneficiaries are shining a light on so many of the issues that we all need to be thinking about, so many of the areas for improvement. And I I am hopeful that for dually eligible beneficiaries, all of the findings that we're compiling from the multiple financial alignment initiatives and all of those evaluations can be used to better inform and evolve the models for these beneficiaries going forward.
3: And I'll just add, I definitely agree with everything Mary said. And it's, it's great to see so much congressional interest, not just the RFI, but also during the last Congress. We saw Senators Cassidy, Scott and Casey introducing the Advancing Integration in Medicare and Medicaid or AIM Act, which would require states to develop integrated care strategies. We also saw the Comprehensive Care for Dual Eligible Individuals Act of 2022 that was introduced by Senators Brown and Portman. That would have created a new voluntary program for states to take up with a Title 22 for duly eligible beneficiaries. So we'll have to wait and see if those get introduced in the 118th Congress, but congressional interest does seem high there. And also my old employer, MACPAC, has really advocated for states to get more resources to implement integrated care programs which could help support those states that haven't yet made big investments in integrated care. So I'd really like to see federal policy that incentivizes states to get in the game or to build upon their existing systems. But again, I'm open minded as to how they get to the end goal of a better program that better meets beneficiary needs.
0: Before we go, do either of you want to share your favorite or go to resources with our listeners?
2: Sure. So two of mine that I rely on a lot. The first is the MedPack and MacPack Dually Eligible Beneficiary Data Book. I think we should be seeing the next version of that coming out in the next month or so, but always a great resource, really helpful, really great insight into the population nationally. And then for those interested in what's happening in California and the Medicare beneficiaries here in the state. There's the DHCS only data book on California Medicare beneficiaries, which with a nice slice on duly eligible beneficiaries within California. So, also recommend that.
0: Well, Mary and Crystal, I want to thank you both for your time today for digging in a little deeper on dual eligible beneficiaries and what to expect in the year ahead. If Congress begins to take action in response to all of the responses they receive on their RFI, we will be sure to have you back to analyze what that looks like and what we're seeing. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for our show today. Thanks to our special guests and stay tuned for more information on dual eligible policy changes over the coming year. We look forward to catching up again with you next month. As always, you can reach us at medicare at arerahealth.com. That's medicare at A-U-R-R-E-R-A health.com. And finally, a reminder to keep in touch with your Medicare loved ones. Send a note, a text, or call today.